Acts chapter 2. We left off in verse 4 in our previous study. I'll start reading there. And I'm going to read a little bit longer section today. Uh, We're going to try to cover through verse 13. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. All right, so in our uh, prior studies, we've only covered the first three verses so far of chapter 2. It is the day of Pentecost. It's the day that the Lord Jesus had in mind when he had told the disciples during the 40 days that he spent... Uh, appearing to them and speaking to them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And this was all described back in chapter 1 of Acts. Uh, He had told them, though, to wait, to not head out in the great assignment he had already given them at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, which we studied through together, of course, which is the Great Commission. They knew they were to go to all the nations and take the gospel message and proclaim it in all locations throughout the world, but the Lord had told them just before he ascended back to heaven, don't leave the city yet, stay in Jerusalem and wait because I am going to fulfill the promise that I have given you that I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they didn't know, as we've already described, that he had in mind the fulfillment day of that promise was going to be the day of Pentecost. But now, at the beginning of chapter 2, the day of Pentecost has arrived. And then when it happens, the 120 disciples, remember, are in the upper room And they've been waiting there for 10 days. They've been praying. They've been seeking the Lord. And the Lord um, then meets them in that place by pouring out the Holy Spirit upon them. But as it happens, they experience a couple of big phenomenon. And those phenomena we, we have spent a couple of weeks focused on. One is they hear a sound like a mighty rushing wind in this room where they're sitting. And then they see appearing over each of their heads flames or in their, in their description here that as Luke writes it, tongues of fire. And we spent some time focused on why those two particular events were experienced in that way. An audible 
an audible experience of the sound of a mighty rushing wind and a visible experience of seeing flames of fire. And we focused on all of the Old Testament connections to this great fulfillment event and um, all of it pointing to specific elements of the presence, the power, and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now that brings us to verse 4, and in verse 4 we have the actual experience as they experienced it, the substance of the event, and then what spills out from that in terms of what the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem are drawn to out of just curiosity to find out what's going on and then what they experience as a result. So in verse 4 again, and they were all, this is not speaking of the inhabitants of the city yet, this is speaking only of the 120 disciples led, of course, by the 12 apostles, but they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We are going to focus some time this morning on what it meant that they spoke in other tongues, but I want you to notice first the detail of how it's described in verse 4, and that is they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And look back for a moment, if you would, with me in uh, chapter 1, and I just want to remind you of how the Lord Jesus described this same experience in advance before they actually experienced it. And then Luke chooses a different term to describe what they experienced when it actually happens. So in Acts chapter one, Jesus is speaking to the disciples starting in verse four. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What we saw in that study that we did, and we actually did a couple of studies back in chapter one, it's been a while since we were there, but in those studies we focused on why the Lord used the word baptism, why he used the imagery of baptism in order to describe this new experience that they had not yet had but were about to have with the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And we linked it as Jesus did to the baptism of John the Baptist in that we saw that the word baptism signified an entry point into a new covenant relationship with the Lord. And so here the Lord uses this same terminology as the experience of John the Baptist baptizing people in preparation for the Messiah's arrival. And he then links it not with the physical water baptism, but with a greater baptism, a spiritual baptism, and describes when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it will be like a spiritual baptism. But then when we get to chapter four, and we just read verse four, and I'll read it again, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to me that Luke certainly could have chosen the word baptism in verse four. He chose that word because Jesus used it in that way back in chapter one, but it's the same man writing chapter two, verse four. He could have easily written it this way, but he didn't. And they were all baptized with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Instead, he describes it as they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean that the filling is somehow distinct from and different from the baptism? The answer is no. It's the same event, the same experience. They're just synonyms 
to describe the same circumstance. One is more image-based, and the other is, uh, is also an image, but a, a different kind of image, and really more focused on what it will actually feel like. And I hesitate to use the word feel because it's more than just an emotional experience, but you know how it is. When you experience anything, you have sensory awareness of what's happening to you. And so he chooses the word, Luke does in chapter 2, that when they actually had this experience of the Spirit coming upon them, he described it as a, a filling. So something happened to them where they experienced being, in a sense, filled up with the presence, the person, and the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that they had never experienced prior to that moment. Now, from this point forward, all the way through the rest of the book of Acts, and then as you move on into the epistles, as Paul and John and Peter later write about these kinds of things, these terms, baptism with the Spirit, filling with the Spirit, they're interchangeable terms. They are synonyms. They mean essentially the same thing. The only reason I'm emphasizing this is that we have a, not, not so much we as a church, but the wider body of Christ and those in particular that, that, um, that interact with these terms in theological ways, we have certain kinds of um, positions and opinions that have, have grown up around the use of these terms and they've become kind of like hardened positions where one group argues with another, one group debates with another, and um, there's insistence that what happened here in Acts chapter 2 was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Don't call it anything else. I just want to point out that that, uh, Luke himself is using the terminology of filling, and it means essentially the same thing as baptism. The only distinction is that when you use the term baptism, you're really emphasizing an entry point into the covenant. And in that sense, I believe that it wasn't the best term to use in chapter 2 because they're already in a new covenant. These disciples are already in a new covenant relationship with the Lord. But the filling of the Spirit essentially communicates the same basic concept. In fact, uh, let's just jump ahead in our Acts study to two passages, or actually one passage, and then I'm going to link it to an Ephesians passage. Just jump ahead a couple of chapters to chapter 4. The next time that we see a, a unique and distinct experience of the Spirit coming upon disciples of the Lord is in chapter 4, and we're going to read it in verse 31. This is in, I I won't give the whole background, but basically the church is seeking the Lord in a time of special prayer, and we read this in verse 31 in terms of what happens after they pray. And when they had prayed, and this is, by the way, the same disciples that are in view here, same apostles, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So the only difference ultimately between the use of the terminology baptized with the Spirit and filled with the Spirit is that the Bible only ever uses the terminology baptized with the Spirit to describe the very first experience of salvation the very first moment where a person is truly born again and the Spirit of God comes to live inside of them. That is 
rightly identified as a baptism with the Holy Spirit. Every other subsequent experience where the Spirit of God is, in a sense, re-energizing those that belong to him, those that are his followers, and is equipping them for what's immediately ahead of them, is always described from then on as a filling with the Holy Spirit. In fact, um, let's now link that to the Ephesians passage I mentioned, which is Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. This is, of course, Paul later teaching about the individual believer's relationship with the Holy Spirit. And he is mentioning the Spirit here in contrast to the danger that any believer can experience by consuming too much alcohol. And so he warns them about that danger and links it to an alternative experience with the Spirit of God. Verse 18 of Ephesians 5, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now that, that is what we call a word of exhortation. We've been studying various exhortations in our, in our New Testament exhortations in our home church studies. This is Paul exhorting the Ephesian church and he is telling them this is what you need to experience. Now as he's speaking to the Ephesians as though, you know, you guys all identify yourself as Christians, you're saved, you're born again. We know they are because of how he addresses them and describes them back in chapter one of Ephesians. You guys are saved, you're born again, you belong to the Lord, but you haven't yet been filled with the Spirit, so I'm exhorting you, I'm encouraging you to get with the program and be filled with the Spirit. The the exact opposite is true, because back in chapter 1, we won't turn back and and link the passage, but he had described that every believer in the city of Ephesus, every believer in the church of Ephesus, had a relationship with the Spirit of God where they had already been sealed with the presence and the power, the person of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of them and filling them. So in the original way, in the Greek language where Paul uses this exhortation in verse 18, there's a a particular kind of verb tense that's used here, and it should be translated this way in English. The only reason it's not is it's kind of awkward in our language because we don't have in English this kind of verb tense. But literally translated, this is what Paul actually said. But be being filled with the Holy Spirit. He, the exhortation is in the word be. Be filled, but not just once, but in an ongoing way, be being filled. In, in other words, what Paul is essentially saying is every day of your walk and life in the Lord is a day in which you need to experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. And in that, we're not thinking so much in terms of a, a spatial, physical experience, like uh, overnight, I went to sleep. That day, that earlier that day, I, I had the presence of the Holy Spirit with me and he was filling me, but I went to bed and while I was sleeping, the, the Spirit just drained out of me. And now I wake up and I'm empty. You know, um, I don't know about you and your daily practices, but I get up every morning and I am empty, but I'm not empty of the Spirit so much. You know, I, get, I go out and make myself a cup of coffee first thing in the morning because I'm just, I'm, I'm needing that, you know, that, that kind of uh, 
that jolt to start my day. Is it like that, that I've just, I've, I've lost the spirit overnight? The idea is the spirit of God, when he comes to live inside of a believer, it's a relationship that's described, not a physical circumstance that's described. So it's not like when the spirit of God comes to live inside of you, he, he fills you and then he kind of oozes out of your pores over time and then you need to go back and get refilled with him in a physical sense. The idea of filling is imagery which simply describes a, a circumstance of a fullness of relationship. So is it possible that on any given day of my Christian life that I am not walking at this present moment in the fullness of the kind of relationship with God's spirit that he wants to have with me and that I should have with him? And the answer to that is yes, that's true every single day of my walk with the Lord. So every single day of my walk with the Lord, I have, because of Ephesians 5.18, I have a, a perspective that the, the spirit of God wants to have a greater, more powerful, more more present in the sense of my awareness of his presence and a, and therefore a greater influence on the decisions I make, the thoughts that I think, the words that I speak and all of the actions that flow out of my life that day. And in that sense of my awareness of him and my interest in being under his influence, when my heart's in the right place, then you can rightly describe as I am full that day of the Holy Spirit. That's my best days, though. And that's your best days. There are days that I've started my day and I didn't really even think about the Lord much at all at the beginning of today. Didn't think much at all about the presence, the power, and the influence of the Holy Spirit upon my heart that day. And then I just got up and just started going through the motions of my day. Whatever my day brought to me and whatever I encountered, I was just interacting with it. And it wasn't that I was doing the worst that I could possibly do or be the worst that I could possibly be, but I wasn't necessarily walking as a filled person with the Holy Spirit. So I I want us to not get hung up in the terminology of baptism versus filling, and I want us to recognize that baptism simply emphasizes the beginning of the relationship, and filling is then a term which describes an ongoing kind of a refreshing of that same relationship. All right, so let's head back then to Acts chapter 2. I'll reread our verse once more. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, as we already identified in our study last week, and as it's going to become evident here just a little bit deeper into the passage, when Luke uses the term other tongues, he's referring to languages in the sense that your tongue is what you use when you speak words, whatever language you happen to be speaking. And we know that link is true in terms of tongues to languages because look down in verse 6. And at, at, the, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So Luke uses both terms to make sure we make that link. 
They were speaking in other tongues, which means they were speaking in other languages. Now, the first thing I want to emphasize is based upon a word that Luke uses in verse 4, which is utterance. It's the last word in the verse. They spoke in other languages. We'll talk in a moment about what languages they were speaking and why. But first, I I just want us to, to get this detail and not miss it. They spoke in other languages. The Spirit gave them utterance, meaning this was a miracle of speaking. They were experiencing what we call a spiritual gift. And we'll talk in a moment about what that spiritual gift actually is and what it isn't. But the gift itself is an ex- it's a miraculous experience of the Spirit of God enabling a human being to speak a language that they have not previously learned, they've not been taught, they've not been coached in it. The reason why this is super important is we, uh, though this doesn't happen in this congregation, there are many uh, good, solid Christian churches that love, and I say good and solid in the sense of they have a true love for the Lord, they have a true love for the gospel, that identify themselves as either Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches. We talked about this somewhat back in chapter one, but I want to rehearse it once more. And they have a viewpoint of this experience, and their viewpoint of this experience is that this this thing of speaking in other languages is a necessary experience for every true believer. And therefore, because they believe that, and by the way, the Bible, again, does not teach that. We'll look at the passages that that, uh, prove that in just a moment. But they do believe that. They become convinced, and there is a strong tradition which, with, within those two streams of Christianity, which represents a huge segment of the wider, true Christian community in the world today. They are convinced that in order to be truly baptized with the Holy Spirit, in order to be truly filled with the Holy Spirit, a person must experience speaking in other tongues. They must experience this spiritual gift and it must be active in them because they describe it as the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Evidence in the sense that if you haven't spoken in other tongues, they don't believe you have been baptized with the Spirit. They don't believe you have been filled with God's Spirit at all. Now, as a result of that, in practicality, what's ended up developing over the generations, and this is really just in the last 100 years or so of modern Christianity within these Pentecostal charismatic circles, there is a tradition that's developed which is we need to get people baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so it becomes kind of like a, like in churches that make uh, altar calls for salvation, in charismatic and Pentecostal churches, they also have altar calls for the baptism with the Holy Spirit, where they call people to come up. If you've never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, come forward, we'll pray for you, and we'll get you baptized in the Holy Spirit. So they'll, generally speaking, lay hands on them and pray for them. And the way that it's done in practicality is the person praying for them will start to speak in other tongues, or what they claim to be speaking in other tongues anyway. And the expectation is that the person that's being prayed for will then follow in suit as they are filled with the Spirit and baptized with the Spirit, they will begin to speak in other tongues as well. There are problems that arise, which is 
sometimes the person being prayed for doesn't begin to speak in other tongues. And so what happens, and I've seen it, I've been in meetings, I've observed it myself, uh, it, it's not biblical, it's not healthy, it's not good, it's not wise, but it does happen, which is they begin to coach people in how to speak in other tongues. Uh, not everyone here comes from a, a charismatic or Pentecostal background, but for those who have, have you ever seen someone coached in how to speak in other tongues? So it's kind of like this, and I'm not going to exactly do it, but I'll give you an example. Like I'm going to call someone up to be baptized with the Spirit, so I'm going to lay hands on them, and I'm going to start speaking in tongues myself. And then if, I, if they're not speaking out, I'm going to say, okay, well, just watch me and listen carefully to what I'm saying as I'm speaking in other tongues, and I just want you to imitate what I'm saying. And as you imitate what I'm saying, it's kind of like the old saying of priming the pump. Now, we don't get our water from pumps anymore. You know, we have faucets and and all of that. But in the old days, if you were pumping water out of a well, you would have to put a little bit of water in the pump first to prime the pump, and that would get the water flowing. And so they believe they're helping the other person to speak by coaching them to follow my example. And then eventually the real thing will start to happen. It's, it's super awkward and, it, and it's, it's super sad because it's exact opposite of what you see here in verse 4. Is anyone being coached by anyone else in verse 4? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit, as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the Lord's work. It's the Spirit's work. Now, if you wonder, am I against speaking in other tongues? The answer is no, I'm not. If the Lord were to give me utterance, I would start speaking in other tongues right now. But I'm not, because why? He hasn't given me utterance to do so. And if he hasn't given me utterance to do so, I'm not going to just try to naturally speaking, make happen what should only be happening if it's a true spiritual experience, a true miracle of utterance, a true miracle of the Spirit's work in someone in order to cause them to speak in a language that they had never learned. Now, what did they actually end up saying? Let's reread verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. What's going on here is this is the day of Pentecost and two things are happening. One is during the day of Pentecost feast, the the population of the city of Jerusalem swelled to two to three times its normal population number because people, pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims came from all over the Roman Empire to Jerusalem because it was one of the three great, out of the seven feast days, it was one of the three great feast days in the Jewish religious calendar, the law calendar of Moses. And so people, thousands of pilgrims would come from all over the empire. Plus, there were people that had lived in other parts of the empire that had moved back to the city of Jerusalem. So we have this description that there are devout Jews. These are not people that know Jesus as Messiah. These are not people that have yet been born again. But they do know the Lord and love the Lord in an old covenant context. That's why they're described as devout men. That word is never used anywhere in the Bible to describe people that that hate the Lord or in, in some way are opposed to the Lord. 
there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, how literally should we take that? Every, this description, men from every nation under heaven. Were there Australian men there? Were there Chinese men there? No. This is the known world. The known world was, for the most part, the Roman Empire and then a few surrounding regions just outside of the reaches of the Roman Empire. Uh, don't get too hung up in being hyper-literal with the, the description of every nation. The Lord is eventually going to, through the Great Commission, he's going to have them take the gospel to literally every nation under heaven. But at this point, every known nation under heaven was represented there at the day of Pentecost. And at this sound, what sound? The sound of this mighty rushing wind that had filled the room where the disciples were praying as the Spirit arrived on the scene. Now, we talked two weeks ago or two studies ago about the, the phenomenon of the, the sound of the mighty rushing wind and how loud that must have been. Now, we have evidence of just how loud it actually was. It was not just particularly loud, like we could turn up in our worship, we could turn up the volume on these speakers, and we could fill this room with a loud sound. But would it necessarily be so loud that people from all of the surrounding houses in this neighborhood would come spilling out of their houses to find out what's going on in here? Would it be that loud? No. But it was that loud on the day of Pentecost, meaning the sound of this mighty rushing wind was significantly loud and it went beyond the four walls of the upper room where they were waiting and praying and it called the um, kind of the uh, curiosity of the people in the surrounding area to come out of their locations and they all came together in this astonished, amazed, bewildered state of what's going on. It sounded to them, it must have sounded to them like a hurricane or a tornado, like it's that kind of a large sound of a mighty rushing wind. And as they came together, apparently now the the 120 disciples are spilling out of the upper room in order to meet and encounter the people that are coming and are being drawn. And they're hearing the disciples who are still under the immediate experience of being influenced by the Holy Spirit to speak in other languages. And they, it's described here in verse 6 that they hear them each one of the people that are drawn by curiosity speaking to them in their own language. So the question is, was this a miracle of speaking or was this a miracle of hearing? The answer is, clearly it's a miracle of speaking. We know that because of how it was described in verse 4. As the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, they spoke in actual other languages. It wasn't the disciples spilling out, speaking in what we would consider to be gibberish, and then just each individual that came out of curiosity, the Lord doing a miracle in their head, in their brain, causing them to hear it in their own language, even though the people weren't actually speaking it. The point is, the speakers were experiencing the miracle, 
and then only by extension the hearers are experiencing the miracle through the voices of the speakers so why is that important because as they gather together they begin to question what's going on because they recognize by apparently by the accent and the galilean accent was a a fairly well-known one they recognize them as all of the people spilling out of the upper room are galileans and the galileans did speak of course they spoke the aramaic language which was the common language of the day among the jewish people and many of them spoke greek because it was the universal language but beyond that they did not speak any other languages and here what they're hearing the the gathered people is they're hearing not everyone understands what each one is saying but you've got parthians medes elamites mesopotamians judeans cappadocians pontius people asian people phrygian people pamphylian people egyptian libyan uh, roman people jewish people cretans and arabians each one is hearing what they're saying in the language their own personal native language now the miracle then is that the holy spirit filled these 120 disciples and in an instant wasn't that you know we have a a 10-day seminar and the disciples you know are given a quick uh study in um what's that what's that um computer language program you can yeah something like Babel or one of those that where uh, you can you know learn any language within a handful of days supposedly none of that is going on literally in an, in a moment's time you have 120 disciples every single one of them are speaking at least one of the languages that I just read again and listed out and then the people from the surrounding area that have gathered to hear this they're experiencing hearing what they're saying in their own language so how great is this miracle it would be like you know uh jan is 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 among us and he you know came from france his his uh, native language is french if you've ever spent any time speaking with jan you know he speaks still to this day with a french accent which is very cool by the way i, I like the french accent but um it would be like if Luton came in among us and he didn't know the Lord and I've never learned any French and suddenly I'm speaking what is to me an unknown language and he hears it in French and I've never learned French. How great of a miracle is that? The answer is, it's amazing. It's, it's miraculous. It's clearly and evidently the work in the hand of the Lord. Now, at this point what we have to distinguish is what are we to make of this and and what does it actually mean what kind of languages were they speaking in they were speaking that day on the day of pentecost in what we would call unknown human languages to them but known human languages to the people that were hearing them speak they were actual human languages there is another form another expression of speaking in tongues that is described later in the new testament and you find this in the book of first corinthians 
and in the chapters 12, 13, and 14. I've done a detailed study through this. We have those studies available on Sermon Audio if you'd like to listen to them. I did a a, a two-week study. This is years ago. This is 14 years ago, back in 2008. But if you want to listen to them, let me know, and I can uh, send me an email, and I can send you a link to the two specific messages where I went through 1 Corinthians 14, line by line, verse by verse, and talked about the distinctions of the experience or the gift of speaking in tongues that's described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, and then drew distinctions between that experience and this one that's described in Acts chapter 2. They are both speaking in other languages. There is a big difference, though. Here in Acts 2, they are human languages. In Acts I mean, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 14, they are not human languages that are being spoken. They are what Paul references as angelic language, or we could also call it heavenly language, language that only God and the angels understand, if it's a true gift as described by the Apostle Paul. Understand that I do believe in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, there are what I would call uh, fake speaking in tongues, meaning people that really, 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 really want to speak in tongues and are, as I described earlier, coached to speak in tongues and end up do speaking in gibberish, but is not actually a real and authentic spiritual gift or the, the, the work and the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. But here we're talking about the real deal in chapter 2 being speaking known human languages in 1 Corinthians 14, speaking unknown spiritual languages, angelic language, language meant to be understood by God himself. I'm not going to veer off into a side study of that because like I said, I've already developed that and it would be, I I did two whole weeks on that, it would be uh, filling up too much of our time this morning. All right, so in our Acts 2 sense, uh, the speaking in other languages that are known to human beings, how common is that and should that then become kind of the the format that we should always expect whenever someone is baptized with the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit later in the book of Acts. There are only, and this is something that's not commonly known and it's it's certainly not ever emphasized in Pentecostal and Charismatic churches. Uh, There are only three places, three in the entire book of Acts where speaking in other tongues is even mentioned. Three places. The first one we just read, Acts chapter 2. Let's read the other two. Uh, Chapter 10. We'll get to these chapters eventually, of course. And there's a reason, by the way, why there's only three times where it happens in this way. But this one we're about to read is the only time that we know for sure that it's the same kind of speaking in other tongues as they experienced in chapter 2. And the reason why it happens again in chapter 10, and not until chapter 10, and there are people, by the way, between chapter 2 and chapter 10, there are people who are baptized with the Holy Spirit. There are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. But they do not experience what the 120 experienced in terms of speaking in other tongues. 
But here in chapter 10, they do. Why in chapter 10? This is the first time that the gospel impacts the Gentile community. The Lord is demonstrating that he is going to work in the same way among the Gentiles as he worked among the first Jewish disciples. We'll read in verse, the the whole buildup is important, but for the sake of time, we're just going to jump right to where it happens. Uh, This is Peter ministering and preaching the gospel to a a Gentile uh, soldier by the name of Cornelius, and he's gathered his household. And we're reading now in verse, chapter 10, verse I believe it starts where I want to start is in verse uh, 44. So Peter's just preached the gospel. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. At this point, the Jewish believers weren't expecting, not all of them anyway, they weren't expecting that the Lord was going to save the Gentiles in the same way that he saved them because they were still operating under the perspective that Jesus was a Jewish Messiah only. And this is the first time that it becomes super clear and evident that Jesus is the Savior of all in the world who will ever believe in him, both Jew and Gentile. Verse six, uh, 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit in this, these key words, just as we have. So this is a parallel experience. And we know it's parallel because number one, Yes, in this case, speaking in other tongues does serve the purpose of evidence, but it's not meant to be evidence in the sense of everyone who will ever be filled with the Spirit must speak in tongues like they did. Simply the Lord gave the same experience in the same way, minus only, interestingly, the mighty rushing wind sound and minus the visible tongues of fire over their heads. But Peter is certain, locked in 100% certain, and those that came with him, that this is the real deal because they're filled with the Spirit of God in the same way and they hear them speaking in other tongues in the same way. And then this very brief two-word description of what they were actually saying. And this is important. And again, this is in contrast to Pentecostal charismatic tradition versus the reality of what was being said when the gift of speaking in other tongues was actually happening in the biblical accounts. So again, I've been part of Pentecostal and charismatic meetings, not recently, but in in my earlier years in the Lord, and have observed a lot of this kind of stuff going on. And um, oftentimes would hear someone uh, speak a message in the church service by speaking out in other tongues, an unknown language. And then there would be, because of the First Corinthians requirement, there would usually be someone that would interpret what was just spoken in tongues. Now in, in Paul's format in, in Corinthians, he describes that if one person speaks in tongues, 
there must be another person speaking a word of interpretation or else the speaker in tongues should just remain silent because it was not meant to be heard by people. And yet in the charismatic Pentecostal tradition, it's usually the same person that speaks that then provides the interpretation. And uh, in that circumstance, the messages are almost always the same. And the messages usually go along these lines. My little children, and there's some word that's spoken to the congregation, you know, kind of a word of encouragement or a word of exhortation to the congregation. We only have these two examples in the book of Acts describing that they spoke in other tongues and two brief descriptions attached to these two times that it happens that tell us what they were actually saying to make it clear that those in that Pentecostal charismatic tradition completely misunderstand the nature of the gift. What was it that was actually being spoken as they spoke in other tongues here in verse 46? They were hearing them speaking in in tongues and extolling God. Now the word and here does not mean, it can mean this, they were speaking in tongues and then they stopped doing that and then they started in the known language extolling God. Or it can refer to this is what they were saying as they were speaking in other languages, other tongues. And that's actually what's going on here. They spoke in other languages on this day in the house of Cornelius and the substance of what they proclaimed was they were extolling God. Now, what does it mean to extol something? It's not a word we use a lot anymore. Yeah, it means to, to speak wonderful things about someone. Like in a, in a funeral, we generally speaking, we extol the person that's passed on. We try to remember the best qualities about that person and publicly declare it. Now, of course, the Lord is not passed on here, but that's what's happening is the disciples that day are filled with the Spirit of God and they begin to proclaim things about God himself. They're not speaking to one another. They're not saying my little children as if God is speaking through them to them. They're speaking to God and they're speaking to God about God, but in such a way that anyone that hears and understands it would be lifted up and built up and encouraged and exhorted by what they're hearing proclaimed about God. Now go back to chapter two and we'll see that it's exactly the same as what happens on the day of Pentecost. Just a different key word describing the substance of what they had to say. Verse 5 again, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these Galileans, how is it we hear each one in our own native language? And he goes on and he gives the list of the various languages that were being spoken again. And then let's jump down to verse 11. After the list of the nations and the different tongues, the different languages, we have this description. Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, what? The mighty works of God. Now, that's not a bad translation. It's just not a super accurate translation. Uh, it, it, it contains the concept of the mighty works of God, but it's literally translated, they heard them telling or declaring out loud publicly in these, in these languages they had not learned, 
They heard them telling the magnificence of God, literally. That's the same as extolling God. So what was the substance of what they were saying? We don't have quotes. We don't know the exact words that were spoken. But we do know the essence of what they were declaring. They were declaring the greatness of the person of God and the works of God because both things are involved in understanding the magnificence of God. So they were speaking about the person, the nature of God himself, how great he is, how good he is, how loving he is, how holy he is, and they were declaring his great and magnificent works throughout history and probably in particular in particular focused on his most recent greatest work is the work in his son probably a proclamation of what we call the gospel message all right so that's it in the book of acts in terms of speaking in other tongues in terms of of what is described as what was actually happening the only other occurrence of speaking in tongues is in chapter 19 let's jump over there real quick And there's just less detail given. Acts chapter 19, and I'll save this for when we eventually get to chapter 19 in terms of the meaning of this particular event. But look in verse 6. This is Paul ministering to some some people that are identified in verse 1 as disciples in the city of Ephesus. And when we get to verse 6, we see Paul laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And then the description, there were about 12 men who had that experience and all. So again, this is the the third and final time in the book of Acts that we see speaking in tongues. And we don't have any detail given to us as to what they were actually saying. So then that that directs our attention back to the two previous events, chapter 2 and chapter 10, where we see they were proclaiming the magnificence of God and they were extolling God as they spoke in other languages. Meaning the message is always God-centered, God-focused if it's a true speaking in other tongues kind of experience. Now, what does this all mean? And I'm going to end with a brief description of what this means. In fact, let's go back to Acts 2 one last time. I forgot to read this last line in our section. We're in verse verse, uh, 12 now. And all were amazed. These are the people that have gathered together to hear them speak. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to, to one another, what does this mean? So that's the final question here, which is, the Lord did this, yes, for the sake of the disciples, The disciples received the fullness, the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord Jesus had given them. He fills them with the Holy Spirit. They experienced the mighty rushing wind. They experienced the the flames of fire over their heads. They experienced the miracle of of speaking languages they had never learned. But then the, the, the crowd from the city gathers and they have their own experience through the, through the disciples of what's happening. And the crowd is left with a question, what does this mean? And my question is, why did the Lord do this other tongues thing for the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem? 
Now, this is not in the biblical text, but I'm going to just briefly describe to you what was commonly known and commonly understood in that day, in that culture. And this was from the teaching of the rabbis of that generation and prior generations leading up to this. The rabbis had linked the event of the Feast of the Day of Pentecost to another great event in Israel's history, and that great event was the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So going all the way back to the beginning of Israel's history, you know the Lord led the children of Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea to the foot of Mount Sinai. He brought Moses up to the summit of the mountain. The the glory cloud of the Lord's presence descended on the mountain. The Lord led Moses into the mountain and revealed the law to him. In that description, back in the book of Exodus, there's a description that the people that were gathered around the foot of the mountain that were not allowed to go up the mountain, only Moses was allowed to go up, but those people gathered around the foot of the mountain heard the sound of thunders. Now, that was because there was an actual experience of a great storm on that mountain, including a rushing mighty wind and including lightnings and various uh, things of that nature. They saw a fire on top of the mountain. All of that was happening. But they heard thunder. Now, this is, again, not in the biblical text. So we can't know for certain that this actually happened in this way. But this is what the rabbis had been teaching the people of the city of Jerusalem in the days of the actual Acts 2 Pentecost experience. They taught that when the thunder happened, it happened, it was actually a spiritual experience in which God was speaking the Ten Commandments through the sound of that thunder. And that the children of Israel heard it in, of course, the Hebrew language, but the rabbis taught that God was through angelic voices speaking to all of the nations on the face of the earth and that those voices were all speaking the Ten Commandments in 70 different languages. The reason they chose the number 70 was because in those days, they believed there were a total of 70 nations on the face of the earth. So God speaking the same message to each one of those nations in their own language, but it was heard as actual thunder. Now, in that the rabbis taught that God had revealed the law to all of the world. He had revealed the law to all of the nations, but only Israel understood it, only Israel embraced it, and therefore only Israel lived by it. So why would on the day of Pentecost, when that was the beginning of an old, what we call an old covenant, now on the day of Pentecost we have the beginning of a new covenant in the days of Peter and the rest of the disciples, Why would God speak to the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem in an other tongues kind of way? I think what's clearly going on is that the Lord is choosing to reveal himself in the new covenant sense of the coming of the Holy Spirit to the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem in a way that would link in their minds, their hearts, and their understanding that something new is happening just like God spoke in their perspective, in their belief, he spoke this way at the beginning of the old covenant start at, at Sinai. Now he's speaking in a similar way in a what must therefore be a new covenant beginning. And so we have God speaking in a way that uh, honors his own plans and purposes, but also 
effectively communicates to the people that were there in the city that day. Uh, We'll stop there in our study, and we have one more uh, worship song to end our service today.